they realize, no, I want to get to greatness. This is going to either unlock what is keeping me stuck, or it's going to teach me how to do things I hadn't even considered. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 164 of Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Ruth Gotian. Dr. Gotian is the Chief Learning Officer and Assistant Professor of Education in Anesthesiology at Weill Cornell. She's also a contributor to Forbes, Psychology Today, Harvard Business, and a researcher in the area of high achievement <laughs> among high achievers, among other things. So I'm really excited to speak with Dr. Gotian today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, so good to see you and talk to you. Uh, so I was originally drawn to your uh, LinkedIn profile because of this really interesting title, the Chief cool, right? Officer in the Anesthesiology Department. So why don't you tell listeners, what exactly does that mean? What does that mean? So I tell people that my job is to make people successful. I have researched success. I literally got my doctorate in it. And I specialized in physicians and scientists and physician scientists. And then I joined a department which is creative and innovative and forward thinking. And they said, we want to do more of this. We want to really make people successful and we want to do education research. And this is this is what I do. I do qualitative research. I study success. I do educational research, a lot of qualitative and I do a lot of writing. So I help the faculty who are trying to get promoted in terms of helping them find talks, helping them find what I call a second lane to start writing, helping them with their networking skills, helping them overcome imposter syndrome. I also do all the coaching for the faculty. So a lot of stuff. I recently had a conversation with uh, Dr. Carlos Orchia Katie on this podcast, uh, an anesthesiologist in Florida who has done many things. And we were discussing the, the role of anesthesiologist as innovator and how the specialty itself, I think, lends to interdisciplinary thinking, outside the box thinking. So I'm curious, describe like the, the genesis of your current role. And is there a reason that it sort of found itself housed in the Department of Anesthesiology in particular? They found me which is really great. I, Before this role, I was running an MD-PhD program, which I had done for over two decades. And at the age of 43, while still working and raising my family, I decided I was going to add one more thing. And I went back to school to get my doctorate. And I studied adult learning and leadership, and I focused on success. And I, at that time, looked at physician scientists right? What made people so successful? Because everyone was talking about the leaky pipeline, those people who were leaving, and I was more interested in those who were staying and doing incredible work. I was like, what if we could make more of those people? So that's what I studied. That's what I did my dissertation on. And after I finished and got my doctorate, I was still curious. And I started researching other high achievers to see if it was the same elements of success that I found in the physician scientist. So I now hang out with astronauts and Nobel Prize winners and Olympic champions. 
And when I knew I was ready to move on from the MD-PhD program, the chair of the department reached out and we had multiple conversations with the leadership in the department. And as I said, they were creative and innovative and forward thinking. And they know how to assemble a good team where not one person knows everything or thinks they know everything, but everyone brings something unique to the table and we can learn from each other. And I think that makes all of us move faster and forward faster. Were there pain points that the anesthesia department or the, you know, the, your corner of the wild Cornell medical Mm -hmm. school was was experiencing where they thought we we want to integrate someone with credentials in adult learning and research horsepower in that direction to be able to like help our faculty with problems or challenges that they're experiencing yeah and and the residents i think it was about more of how can we be better how can we be more innovative what is the gap in the way we're doing things and who has expertise in this. And because I've been working here a long time, I know a lot of people and I was having these conversations and I teach professional development all day, every day, either one-on-one or in groups or keynotes or whatever it is. So it just became such a natural fit. And who are we kidding? Anesthesiologists are really nice people. Really nice and very well grounded. Yes, could not agree more. So, what what kind of challenges do have you, have you found in your immediate vicinity for the role for which you were hired? What kind of challenges are anesthesiologists facing? So, some of the the challenges are also very similar to some of the challenges that surgeons face, and this is why the regular professional development that the Office of Faculty Development usually offers does not apply to them. Because what they offer is, you know, Tuesday at two o'clock. Well, Tuesday at two o'clock, they're in the operating room. And if, you know, they have certain color scrubs they need to wear and they can't leave the building. So even if they had an hour off or half an hour off, they can't leave the building without changing their clothes. It just became impossible. And it, it didn't cater to those people who don't have control over their own schedule. And their needs were very, very different because... While they're very collaborative, it's also very isolating work, right? They are by themselves, essentially, in the OR in terms of anesthesiologists. They're not surrounded by this team with other anesthesiologists in the OR with them. So the the experiential learning is a little bit different. The collaboration is a little bit different. That happens when you run into people in the hallway, when you run into people in the coffee room. And I think COVID made a lot of that much harder. The shift work is also very different, right? We never have all of our faculty here at the same time, right? Someone's pre-call, someone's post-call, someone, you know. So this makes it very, very difficult for them to also go to these workshops, these professional development workshops where they go somewhere for three days. That's almost impossible. Who's covering the OR? How can they take three days off? So it's, and even if they did, it's only one or two people, not the 120 people in the department who would get to benefit from that. So instead of waiting for other people to do this, I now do it. And it is in the ORs and in the hallways and in the coffee rooms and on Zoom and through papers and through workshops. It's It happens 
in every type of format and medium you can imagine. When doctors come to you, is there a specific problem or pain point that they're most commonly trying to address? Sometimes. Sometimes it's overcoming imposter syndrome or I want to work on my promotion. I need to get more talks. I need to publish more. I don't know how to do it. I'm not really doing research, right? Some of them are just, they're pure. I don't want to say just, they are pure clinicians. They're not doing research. They don't have an interest in doing research. But I'm here to tell you, you do not just have to publish on research. There are so many other topics that you can publish on. And that's really when I start teaching them about what I call the second lane. So you have your clinical expertise, right? Your neuroanesthesia, OB anesthesia, whatever it is. But there's also something else that you are passionate about. And you can start developing that. Maybe it's DEI. Maybe it's wellness. Maybe it's burnout. I mean, the topics are endless. But let's assume you want to talk about burnout and you are going to the ASA meeting. Before they ever bring an outsider, they will bring in one of their own. So you don't need to be the world expert on burnout. You need to be the expert in the room. And if you have started to give a few grand rounds, if you have started to maybe publish some on burnout and say BJA, for example, they are going to invite you to give that talk before they ever bring in that quote unquote world expert. So you need to start developing that second lane by writing some pieces on it, giving some talks on the topic. So I really help the faculty develop that second lane, and that really enhances their CV. What are the, do you find are doctors' biggest hurdles to whether it's taking that first step or sort of taking things to the next level? Because I this for many is going to be a totally new yeah. initiative. Yeah, requires some. I mean, frankly, like you mentioned imposter syndrome. We've talked about that at some length on this show at different times. And there's a lot of, I mean, things that we believe about ourselves, right or wrong, that prevent us from taking those steps. And there's a level of vulnerability built yep. into doing a thing that you think is important in a way that's very public and can be publicly rejected. So how do you help people through that sort of whole rigmarole? So I believe that imposter syndrome happens because you're experiencing something you've never experienced before, very often a success. And your body doesn't quite know how to react. So I think instead of looking at it as a trigger for anxiety, we should see it as, oh, there was a success that just happened. That's why I'm feeling this. My body is just confused. It's actually a good thing. It means you've achieved something. That's actually a very good thing. One of the things that I try to do because I like to aim big, right? I think to dream big or dream small takes the same amount of energy. You might as well dream big. So when it comes to developing ideas, I say, let's stop. Let's start at the top journal. They don't like us. They're very quick to reject. No problem. But why, why start low and work your way up? Why don't you start at the top? And I remember there was a very junior faculty member who was doing incredible DEI work within our department. And I reached out to her and I said, this is incredible. It needs a bigger stage. And this is right after the whole George Floyd murder and everything. 
And we started having some conversations about it. And then we started writing about it. And by the end of that summer, we wrote two pieces, one in BJA and one in Nature, about how to diversify. One is how to diversify anesthesia, and the other is how to diversify research and academic environments without waiting for a decree from the dean. And then there was a presentation with one of the directors from the NIH, and this is a junior faculty member, because she developed her second lane. And maybe she didn't know how to do that on her own, but this is where collaboration is so important. So sometimes I say, I have this idea, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know where to go with it. And this is also where coaching is very helpful. In the past, coaching used to be, oh, for those on a banana peel out the door, this is your last saving grace. But now our faculty, I do the coaching for our faculty, they realize, no, I want to get to greatness. This is going to either unlock what is keeping me stuck, or it's going to teach me how to do things I hadn't even considered. And now our faculty are publishing in these top journals. I had an intern published with me in Nature last year. I mean, it's just the possibilities are endless. What has uh, surprised you about this? Obviously, you know, people come to you, I'm sure, feeling that their circumstances are novel and maybe difficult to understand in some ways for others. And for you, it's like, oh, it's another of the same thing, probably. So is there anything in your work, either a specific circumstance or a facet of what you do that you found surprising? I think the issue of scheduling is what was the biggest surprise for me is that it's fluid because you could have meetings with people to talk about something they're very excited and then they can't because the case is running long and it has to get rescheduled and rescheduled and rescheduled for months, for months. And this is becoming a real problem. This is why I now go to the ORs with my laptop because I said, we can't go on like this. That was the other thing. The second thing was they don't really sit and eat meals. There's just a lot of grazing that goes on because there's no time. So when we talk about wellness, it's they don't even take the time <laughs> to eat a meal. And when they do, it's in, it's standing like they're still residents. So we're, we're working through all that. It's true, though. You know, it's true. <laughs> uh, yeah. My, uh, my wife is just coming back from the uh, anesthesia boards. And uh, she was describing the, you know, five hours of or however many hours of sitting and doing this thing and the, you know, the 10 minute interval in between session number one and session number two to like stuff whatever she could into her face while she's taking a bathroom break and then, you know, back at it. It's I think it's like hardwired into the infrastructure. It's it's absolutely hardwired. And I think that's why they go home and they're still eating standing over the <laughs> sink. <laughs> right. They don't grow out of it. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the sort of the breadth of the work that you currently do. So a portion of it is related to what you just described, working with physicians and doing coaching in your department at Cornell. But there's, you know, a broader scope. You mentioned before we were getting on here, you mentioned you were just doing a presentation for the a business school in Ukraine while there apparently was an air raid siren happening in the background. So you're you're there is there's a lot going on in the other work that you're doing. So give us a sense of that scope. Yeah. So as much as I help everyone else, I am also a faculty member which means I also need to write grants and write papers and give talks. 
And that's what I do. And I partner with incredibly interesting people because of my work studying extreme high achievers. So Thinkers 50 is considered the Oscars of management thinking. And I got on their radar, so to speak, (laughs) about a year and a half ago. I was one of 30 new emerging management thinkers to watch, 30 in the world. And about a year later, I was ranked as the number one emerging management thinker in the world. Now, that has been incredible because there's very few in healthcare that actually bridge those worlds, which is so fascinating because I can learn from other people and bring it into healthcare. And I can also teach them what is happening and they can bring it into their their own world. Anyway, when the war broke out in Ukraine, like a lot of people, I felt extremely helpless. I wanted to help but didn't quite know how, because I wanted to help people directly. And one of the things I think I'm really good at is teaching in the one-to-many model, which is why I love the keynotes and the workshops. And when the the co-founders of Thinkers 50 asked me, would you give a talk to the faculty and students in Ukraine's top business school? I said, sure. (laughs) I said, but let's make this even more fun. They deserve something even better. How about I bring an astronaut with me? So the astronaut, Dr. Charlie Camarda, and I decided we were going to give a talk, a conversation about high performance. Now, they're in Kiev and we're here. And right before our talk, an air siren goes off. And we don't quite know how to do what to do. And this is like their daily existence. But it's, it's the matter of I can give the talks and I can write the articles and I can teach other people how to do that as well. And I also wrote a book called The Success Factor about high achievers and how we can all become high achievers. So these are all kinds of things I do. And I always bring everything back to my work with anesthesiologists, always. Talk about your book. I'm curious what threads you have sort of drawn out in the, uh, the commonalities of other, you know, the high achievers you mentioned, and and how do you try to sort of bring that to bear in the work that you do with physicians every day? Yeah. So how does a Nobel Prize winner relate to an astronaut who relates to an Olympic champion, an NBA champion, et cetera? They all have the same four elements of success. So I tell people it's not about copying other people's habits, right? Just because some high achievers wake up at 5 a.m., if you're a night owl and don't go to sleep till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, or you've just been on call, you are not waking up at 5 a.m., not going to happen. But you can emulate mindsets. And that's really what the book is about. So I interviewed everyone from Tony Fauci to the Golden State Warriors coach, Steve Kerr, to NASA's former chief astronaut, Dr. Peggy Whitson, to the founder of Build-A-Bear Workshop, Maxine Clark. I mean, really an eclectic group. And I found out that they all were able to tap into their intrinsic motivation. What it is they love to do? What they would do for free if they could? And then how do they approach challenges, right? What is what is it that they do differently that they don't give up so easily? And the strong foundation that all of them have built where they never, 
ever rest on their laurels. What they did early in their career, they did later in their career as well. And then finally, that their mind is always open to continuous learning and continuous learning from other people as well. So you can do that by reading, you can do that by talking to people, you can do that by listening to podcasts, hopefully we're sharing good stuff here, webinars, LinkedIn learning courses, the possibilities are endless. So these four elements of success that I talk about in the success factor, I bring that into my work with anesthesiologists every single day. Whenever there's a challenge, I say, control what you can control, right? That's a great lesson that I learned from all of all of them, right? When something, if you're on a space shuttle mission and something's not working out, well, what are you focusing on? You control what you can control. Same thing that happens in the operating room. Same thing that happens outside of it. Can you talk a little bit about maybe a, a couple anecdotes where you've taken these four principles and map it on to a specific instance or circumstance that a physician has been facing and, and how that catalyzed some positive change? Sure. So the first one is the passion, that intrinsic motivation. And the intrinsic motivation is what you would do for free if you could, which is different from extrinsic motivation, which is the diploma, the reward, the promotion, et cetera. When you do things for the extrinsic motivators, you usually burn out or fail out because that's when other people are judging you. But when you do it for yourself, that's when the magic happens, right? So this happens a lot with the coaching where sometimes they are just burnt out. And I think COVID has really done a number, not just on healthcare workers, we all know that, but especially to anesthesiologists who are at the front of the front line and really got the brunt of it. And we had to really tap in to remind them, why did you do this? Why did you become a physician in the first place? Why did you become an anesthesiologist? And sometimes we need to tap into that. And I've done that with students. I literally pulled out their med school essay of why you want to be a doctor. But here we have done that and it also helped us develop their second lane because there's research that shows if you only spend 20% of your time doing what you love, the other 80% is not going to burn you out. That's how we were able to develop these second lanes for some people. And that's really what got them through the darkest times because especially for anesthesiologists, it was rough. It was really, really rough at the beginning. That's just a, a perfect example of why you do that. And that's why we have people who are working on the wellness and the burnout and the DEI and all of those other things. Does uh, going down that road with someone ever make them realize that they don't want to quit right now and they don't even care anymore? And it brings about an epiphany, perhaps in a direction that was, they, they realize that it's the extra, it's the expectation and the extrinsic motivation that is sort of propelling them down a path where they're They've lost the love or whatever it is. I mean, the med school essay, I think, is an interesting example. They just understand medicine differently or their yeah. sense of vocation, sort of a capital V, like the thing that really is internally motivated. And it's just it has it has shifted, not in a bad way, but yeah. but they've kind of grown in another direction. Has, have you seen that at all? That's right. And that's why I take people through a passion audit which is very important to figure out what it is that you love doing because it can change over time. 
it especially changes when you have a transition in your life, a new partner, a new house, a move, a pandemic. These are all things that can cause our passions to change. The physicians are never not going to love taking care of patients. What really they don't love is all the bureaucracy around it, right? They went into medicine for a reason. But what if we can have part of your energy directed towards something that you love, right? And that's where some of those other things came in. So when you have a focus on developing that, that bureaucracy that really drives you crazy starts to just glide off you like Teflon. And that's really what we work to find. And if any of your listeners want to do their own passion audit, obviously one comes with the book, The Success Factor, but they could just download one for free right from my website. They could just go to ruthgotian.com slash passion audit. Anybody who's listening, we're going to link to all the resources that we're going to discuss today. So the success factor, Dr. Gotian's book, her website, you can find if you go to apmsuccess.com slash 164 for episode 164, you're going to find all the stuff listed there. I'm really intrigued with this idea. First of all, I think it's interesting that you pointed out that 20%, 80% relationship. It, it's reminding me of the idea that if you spend five minutes in the morning and you know meditate and do breathing work and the, the things that you do to sort of mentally center yourself and prepare mm -hmm. for the day, how that yep. five that five minute interval has a positive ripple effect that can stretch the entire rest of the day. For some people. For some people, that's right. Right, because I'm the kind of person every time they say meditate, it doesn't work for me. I have tried a thousand times. It just doesn't work. But what I have learned is that, remember I said, yeah, some high achievers wake up at five o'clock in the morning and that's great for some people, but not for everyone. It's not waking up at five o'clock in the morning that makes them successful. It's what they do during their peak performance hours. This is the key part. The, the key performance hours, and it's different for every person. So for me, I am one of those people who wakes up at five o'clock in the morning. I am very much a morning person. I can get more done by 10, 11 a.m. than I can the rest of the day, which means my morning hours have to be very strategic. It's when I do my deep focus work. It's when I do my writing. It's when I do my editing. It's when I do my budgets. I am not answering emails. I am not looking at social media. I am not having Zoom meetings. Those are passive tasks. I don't want to burn my, my deep focus hours. So some people on their academic days, for example, they will put in time for deep work. I'm like, you can't do deep work on command like that. It doesn't work. Figure out your peak performance hours and work then on those tasks that require the most cognitive focus. Now, the next layer of that is... How are you going to do that? So let's say, for example, it's usually about three, four hours that, you, that you're able to do that deep focus work. You cannot sit for three, four hours nonstop. You just can't. You want to be able to get into what we call a state of flow where you're not tired, you're not hungry, time melts away. And you want to do something called the Pomodoro technique. You're actually working in spurts. You'll work for 25 minutes, take a five-minute break, another 25 minutes, a five-minute break. And after three or so Pomodoros, you take a longer break. And when you're working for those 25 minutes, you are not checking social media, you're not doing anything else 
that's a lot easier. You can say, I can focus for 25 minutes. It's a lot harder to say, I can focus for three hours. Now, caveat, for some people like me, I have a longer on-ramp. So 25 minutes is not enough for me. I need 35 to 40. I've had a lot of practice with this. So for me, it's the washing machine cycle. My Pomodoro is one washing machine cycle. And that's how I can do two things at once. That's funny. I do have a Pomodoro timer app on my phone. And so I have tried to do this and, you know, experience varying degrees of success. I will say there's a, uh, I, I, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a big believer in the Cal Newport deep work. He's the guy who wrote mm -hmm. this book about how do you sort of access that part of you doing the work that only you can do and basically right. do as much of that as possible. It also reminds me of, uh, there's a guy, Stephen Pressfield, who has written a bunch of things. One of them, The War of Art, essentially geared towards writers and artists and artisans of all flavors, but it also maps on really nicely to entrepreneurs. And there's this quote from it. I can't remember who it's attributed to, but it's one of the ones like in the chapter introductions, like the one that sits up there yeah. next to the number of the chapter. And it's, the guy says, I write only when the muse makes herself known. Hmm. It just so happens that she shows up every day at 9am. And so I guess it's a little bit of a counterpoint to what you were sharing, because I have found that when I, that the structure begets the creativity and begets the deep work. And obviously everyone has to find their own flow. But mm -hmm. for me, in my pursuit of trying to find that space yeah. where I'm doing the thing that only I can do, uh, I find that Google Calendar is the best way for me to get there. And then sometimes it does show up for two or three hours at a time, usually when my wife's on call and my kid's in bed. And oh my gosh, I can finally have three hours where the nice thing about being on the West Coast is it ten from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m., no one's emailing you. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's when it happens. The challenge, though, is that you can't do more after the three hours because you're so exhausted and depleted. Yeah. So I go to bed then. <laughs> so, that's why those that's why those breaks are so helpful. Look, yeah. the success factor was written on weekend mornings over a, I don't know, eight or nine month period because I work full time. And when I come home, I was just too exhausted to work on it. My only time was weekends, and I know my best and clearest work comes in the morning. So wrote in the morning, did some editing in the evening, and that's how I got a book. <laughs> so I, I'm interested in this idea of the passion audit. So when somebody goes to the website and they go to your website, what are they going to find if they wanted to go through this exercise? So the, the passion audit is a three-column exercise to really differentiate between what you're good at, what you're not good at what you're good at but don't enjoy, what you really don't like doing, and what you would do for free if you could. And there are some targeted questions to pull that out of you. And every time I do this with someone, we find something new. And it has to be done whenever you have a transition in your life. I'm excited to check this out for myself. I'm curious, as we're you know sort of bringing this conversation to a close, from all of the work that you've done and all the resources to which you've been exposed, if you're getting somebody up to speed, you know, obviously we have a limited time here, you and I and the audience that's listening, what other resources would you point people toward in order to find their second lane or refine how they want to pursue that or develop the skills or beat the imposter syndrome? The, the resources that for you are sort of the bedrocks, how do we move the needle in the right direction for a very high achieving, very intelligent cohort of professional that we're talking about? There's so many. There's really so many. It really depends on the topic. But one of the things that 
I'm finding, especially with anesthesiologists, is that they tend to hang out with their own. And everyone around them is either other physicians or other anesthesiologists. And I'm trying to teach them how to break out and talk to people in other departments, other institutions, and also other industries, because that's really how we can learn, right? What is innovation? It's really taking an idea someone else used and using it in a new way, right? That's how Apple and Microsoft got their operating system. They really pilfered it from Xerox. So it's really about the same thing. And it's having these conversations with other interesting people. And I teach people how to have conversations with strangers. And it's so important because it's how you can get ideas. It's how you can become more creative and more innovative. And for those of you who want to get promoted, it's how you develop your network. These people can write letters of recommendation for you later. These people can also be collaborators on papers. So if you do want to know how to start these conversations with strangers, which seems to be one of my most requested topics, I give you 13 of my top conversation starters on my website, ruthgotian.com slash conversations. My preferred method of starting conversations with strangers is launching a podcast and then asking them to talk to me. So I highly recommend that if anyone's There you go. It's funny. You mentioned the word network, and this is one of these sort of intangible skills. And I love the the idea of the sort of interdisciplinary awareness. That I agree 100%. That's where the great ideas come from. And you just take one deep expertise and then another ancillary expertise and wherever they meet, that's where you're going to do something really special that not a lot of... I mean, perfect example is your job and my job. They wouldn't exist without that sort of crossover. But the, the idea of the network... For me, coming up, it was like literally the first thing you learn in undergrad going to business school is you need to make friends with strangers in order to get to know them and have them get to know you and expand your influence and expand the options that you have as somebody who's trying to make their way in the world. I find that physicians just never get that. I was talking to a client the other day and we're talking about, you know, finding a job and I'm sort of beginning to peel back the layers of the onion and they've never really networked at all. So we're talking about, you know, how do you write an email to someone to introduce yourself and build rapport and then have a reason to have a conversation with someone that can help you? It's something that's, for me, is so basic. I've been doing it for, I mean, since I was 18 years old, I guess. But if you don't have a reason to learn it, it's not hard to imagine that you would need those skills, but they are critically important. Critically important. We definitely learn it in business school. I think we've all read Dale Carnegie's book (laughs) in business school. You know, people always ask me, I've interviewed, as I said, the Nobel Prize winners and astronauts and NBA champions. And they say, well, how did you get to meet all these people? And I tell them 90 to 95% of the people were referrals from people in my network. I needed to know one Nobel Prize winner, one astronaut, one Olympian, and that opened the doors. But the thing is, you have to give more than you take, always. And I don't care who you are. I don't care what your status is. There is always, always something that you can give. I have a CEO of industry, a pharmaceutical industry, who says he wants to write a book. And he asked me about the process and and everything else. And here I am helping a CEO of a multi-gazillion dollar industry 
right, about what was my process and how did I do it. A Nobel Prize winner wrote a great book, but the only people who were reading it were other scientists. That's all he knows. Those are his people. And he didn't know how to market the book to other people. Well, I did business. I know marketing. I, I know how to do this. So here I am helping a Nobel Prize winner. Like, right? <laughs> that talk that, we're, that we were giving in Ukraine today, where I partnered with an astronaut, right? That's a great opportunity for him. It was fun for me, right? There is always something that you can offer. I don't care how junior you are, and I don't care how senior the other person is. There is always, always, always something that you can offer to do. Great advice. In in closing, any other words of wisdom or resources you want to connect us to that we can link in the show notes that our users will find helpful as, as it relates to the topic at hand? So many. So we didn't even talk about mentors, but there's a lot of research. Those who have mentors out-earn and outperform those who are not. And the idea of one-on-one mentors is old and archaic. And now we talk about mentoring teams. So there's a whole science behind how to develop it, but I've broken it down in a way that's actionable and easy. So if anybody wants to develop, start looking into developing their own mentoring team, you could just go ruthgotian.com slash mentoring team. And I write a lot about professional development. So if you just look up Ruth Gotian on Forbes or Psychology Today or Harvard Business Review or Nature, you will see articles on every imaginable topic. And if there's something you'd like for me to cover that I haven't, just reach out and I'll do my best. Excellent. That's a perfect ending point, Dr. Ruth Gotian. Thank you very much for joining us, for lending your expertise and providing us with so many great resources here on APM Success. Thanks for having me. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.